thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Arado, and with me is a guy who would never sell your digital data, (laughs) Mike Vandebogart. Thanks, Joe, and thank you once again to everyone who's tuned in. Just got a couple announcements here before we get going. And first of all, we got a lot of new Patreon supporters to thank this month, so hopefully I get all these names right. I already see a few. I'm probably going to screw up. Uh, (laughs) So we've got Ellen Morningstar, Chris Sweet, uh, Matt Huffman, and thank you, Matt Huffman. I, I know him, so I appreciate that. Uh, Artemis Gray, uh, Brianna uh, Gennetti, Brooklyn Shimbashi. Probably said that wrong. Uh, I actually think you got that one right. <laughs> uh, Adrian Kepkovic, uh, Casey Stanley, Becky uh, Pitt. <laughs> what do you think that, that is, Joe? <laughs> nope, nope, you don't get my help. You have to say it first, then I'll tell you what I think it is. Picnetti? Maybe the- I think it's P- Picanetti. Picanetti. Sorry, Becky. I think I, I don't know if I'm <laughs> right. I, I'm, I sound very confident when I say it, but I actually have no clue either. Um, Tracy Urbis, uh, Krista Shway, Zane Simon, uh, Chelsea uh, Beerly. Chelsea? Chelsea. My bad. Uh, <laughs> that one you've no excuse for. That's a pretty common name. That is. Uh, Anthony <laughs> Romeo. Uh, Teresa Mizens- Mizenska. Probably really butchered that one. And uh, Quinn Lee. So apologize if I got your name wrong, but thank you so much for helping the show out. Uh, it means a lot to Joe and myself. Every dollar helps us make a better show. And if you are new to the podcast and would like to help the show out, just head over to our Patreon page. And for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to a bunch of uh, additional episodes that only Patreon members get, free swag giveaways. Um, we have a Discord server uh, and any other cool things that we decide to come up with. So uh, for as little as a dollar a day, you can you can help the show out. Uh, we also have our Patreon uh, wall of fame up on our website. So... Uh, any Patreon supporters who want to get their uh, their picture up on our website, just fill out our uh, opt-in form that you can find on Patreon. And we we actually have a few that still owe you some pictures, don't they, Mike? No, they uh, they sent them oh, in. I uh, okay. I haven't gotten the website updated, so got to make sure we have everybody represented, <laughs> yeah. all of our big fans. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's cool to see you know the faces to the names and where people are from. Uh, we also are going to be launching a new store right on our website. I'm in the process of building that out, so check back for that in a couple of weeks. We got some new keychains that are going to be going live on our Facebook store soon. And we were told that they help you chain your keys together very well. <laughs> very well. And uh, unfortunately, our Patreon supporter who won our free t-shirt giveaway has still not contacted me, so we will be uh, selecting a new Patreon supporter 
Uh, let's to, do let's let's do what like seventy two hours from the airing of this episode, so it's an official last warning. Yeah, uh, we will select a new Patreon supporter for that T-shirt on Monday. Let's say. All right. <laughs> um, so and also, uh, if you uh, haven't been on Patreon yet, uh, check out my our latest episode on Patreon. Uh, it was just me rambling on for an hour, so. Um, I guess. Yeah, but you're like the Beyonce of the group, so you can go solo and still like make it good. If I did it, I would just be a Destiny's child that nobody knows about. Oh man, yeah. So <laughs> I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't get the editing down. Uh, Joe is our the Obi Wan Kenobi of editing. Uh, so and Joe, I think, is going to record a a Joe only Patreon episode next. So some people were asking us. Well, I wasn't sure yet, but I guess now I am. Yeah, now you have to. Um, the final thing I want to mention, and sorry if I'm stalling, it's because I'm looking it up, uh, but we recently just got a, a phone number uh, for the podcast, and uh, you can, <laughs> we're asking people if they want to, to call in and leave a voice message. I've got it. I went back to our text recently. I've got it too. I've got it too okay. now. Okay. Um, so yeah. Uh, we urge anyone who wants to, uh, they can call in, leave a voice message, and you can ask the show a question. You can uh, suggest a case. You can leave a comment. For you, any reason. Any reason. You can say like, whatever you want. Yeah, if you just are out late one night and you're a few in the bag with your buddies and want to call and leave a message, I would actually prefer those, yeah. like the two in the mornings, because I think those would be hilarious. Uh, and if you're lucky and it's appropriate, yeah, we may put it on the air. Don't say anything you wouldn't want. Uh, publicly aired, so uh, we may or may not use any of them. I, who knows what we'll get. But the number to call is 208-391-6913. So I'll also post that in the show notes. So give us a call. We're, we're anxious to hear what you have to say. I'm very anxious. I will be so disappointed <laughs> if nobody calls in. Uh, so that is the end of my update. So, uh, Joe, why don't you take it away? All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. Between April 1989 and April 1992, five murders occurred in Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan. The murders were seemingly random and not connected by any motive except one. All the victims were enjoying an outdoor activity. The victims were joggers, campers, outdoorsmen. Join us this week as we investigate the Ohio Outdoorsman Killer. Thomas, or Tom, Lee Dillon was born in Canton, Stark County, northeastern Ohio, on July 9, 1950. Tom's father died when he was just 15 months old of Hodgkin's disease. Psychologist Jeffrey Smalden said that Dillon viewed his mother as a cold woman who never praised or punished him. Dillon has no memories of his mother ever hugging him, kissing him, or even telling him that she loved him. 
Dillon worked as a draftsman for a municipal water department for the city of Canton for 22 years. He was a husband, father, and lived a quiet life in the middle-class ranch house in Southern Star County's Pike Township. The Dillons were described as a very close-knit family. Classmates remember Dillon as an extremely intelligent but a loner, loner person with a few friends. His 1968 senior yearbook lists no extracurricular activities. Tom was removed from the group, said a classmate, Ronald Skelton. He was a person who marched the beat of a different drummer, separated from the mainstream. Another classmate, Thomas Bright, said that Dylan was quiet, especially in a group. He always liked him, Bright said. I got a kick out of him. He made me laugh. Dylan would take trips into the backwoods of Ohio alone, stop on his way to buy beer, and often drove hundreds of miles immersed in his own thoughts, dreaming he was a special forces soldier out hunting for enemy combatants. In his teenage years, Dylan began keeping count of the animals he killed on a calendar in his bedroom of his family's home on 37th Street in Canton. He also kept a calendar for all the girls he had slept with. <laughs> so just uh, interrupt, interrupt you here, Joe. Yes. Um, just I, I, my initial thoughts are, you know, he seems like an odd guy already. Oh, yeah, 100%. Just, yeah, uh, you know, it's just it's strange that he's keeping a log of animals he's killed and, uh, you know, women he's bed. Uh, so, so if if you're a vervacious person who takes in true crime stuff, especially murder related, mm-hmm. uh, this profile is starting to sound really similar to a lot of other uh, white male serial killers. Yeah, that, I, it definitely does. And it's just interesting that obviously we have the benefit of hindsight here, but, you know, these guys all seem to have a very similar life story and tendencies. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, even even in just the first couple of minutes of hearing hearing about him, I I already tell something's off, and I don't know yeah. what he's done yet. Well, and what you do <laughs> is you immediately start thinking about all the people you knew in high school, and all and like, okay, which one of them? Like, yeah, that, right? that's like the one bad thing about hearing about all this stuff is you start seeing it everywhere. Yeah. So, following high school, Dylan attended Kent State University's Stark campus, and later Ohio State University. However, the animal killings continued after Dylan graduated from Ohio State in 1972. He went to work for the Canton Water Department and married Catherine Elsus, a nurse from Alliance, in 1978. And by the early 80s, Dylan was boasting the count on his death calendar had reached 500. So did he ever, or did you ever find out... um like how he was killing these animals, what kind of animals was he killing? Like, yeah, we're going to go over it. This, yeah, we're going to go over it. Um, I do want to mention too, I'll mention at the end of the podcast also. So we work with, uh, Oh, what's the name of the website? I'm forgetting it. The outdoors website that we work with strange outdoors. So we work with strangeoutdoors.com a lot. And this, this was a uh, story on their site that I really liked and thought would be a nice one to cover. So it's written more like an article. So a lot of it's going to be read, and then we'll kind of jump in and, and it's kind of like a, a story. This is <clears throat> much different yeah. than one of our normal episodes we do. We, we kind of wanted to just switch things up. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, we'll get into some like uh, testimony from friends and, and things like that. You're, you'll start seeing kind of the, the really dark side of Tom in this. So. so he was basically boasting that and this is when he's married. 
he's still keeping track of all the animals he's killed. Not yeah, like which ones. Where like I'm sure a lot of people who don't like hunting or, or guns in general would say, well, that's what hunters do. And really, hunters... It really isn't. In, <clears throat> it, it, it's different than, yeah. than keeping a trophy of it. And I know some serial killers do that, but just tallying a number and going for big numbers is not something that at least any hunters I know do. Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, people that deer hunt, they'll remember if they shot a, a huge buck just because mm-hmm. it's kind of a, you know, bragging rights, like, oh, I got the 12-point buck. But, you know, I've been uh, grouse hunting with uh, my family for years, and I couldn't tell you how many grouse I've gotten over the years because I've never kept track. I remember yeah, you're years not going where I... home and writing it down on the <laughs> yeah. account. Like, that, that just the act of doing that is weird. Yeah, it's uh, – and, you know, you're not really – you're not out there hunting grouse just to kill birds. Uh, we do eat them and, you know, I'm not going to go into all of the reasons why yeah. <laughs> people hunt, but you know, part of it is, you know, the DNRs for these different States like these hunters out there to help kind of control the populations of the animals. Sure. Um, so that's all I'll say about yeah, that. They, they keep <laughs> count, but that's their job. Yeah. <laughs> so Dylan had a passion for weapons and according to his friend and fellow hunter, Richard Fry, he was always changing guns while dylan occasionally bought weapons at gun shows most came from private sales through classified ads and mail order uh, from gun dealers fry said dylan almost always carried weapons even when he rode his bike he didn't just collect guns dylan dylan fired around a thousand rounds a year in target practice so much that he damaged his hearing doing it and he also used a crossbow you'd have to win the lottery right now to shoot that many rounds (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> he seemed to get a physical thrill out of killing. According to Fry, who recalled Dylan once used a knife to finish off a wounded groundhog. He was shaking. He was in a frenzy, wild-eyed. Dylan didn't have any qualms of, uh, qualms about talking about killing animals. Now, that is like... <laughs> Mike, if if me and you are out hunting, yeah. and all of a sudden I have like, I shot something and it's not dead yet, and I like get on my hands and knees and like finish it off with a knife and get wild eyed and start like going crazy. Would that not be a little bit of a red flag to you? Yeah. I'd probably call your <laughs> wife and tell her to keep an eye on you. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, I think Joe needs some help. Yeah. That, uh, no one should get pleasure out of killing animals. Um, even, you know, when I, I read a story about, you know, there was a story a couple months ago, there was a fire at a pet store and like, 30 dogs and cats were killed and it just I it just made me sick to my stomach thinking about that. Yeah. So the fact that, you know, he was just, you know, gleefully talking about killing these animals is really uh, a, a a red flag. <laughs> yeah, it, the flags get redder. Don't worry. So Yeah. Uh in the late 70s and early 80s, Dylan would sometimes take dead animals home, Fry said. I can remember one pretty good-looking German shepherd it still had arrows stuck in him. Dylan would talk about grossing people out at work with his tales of killing and didn't seem to understand why people would find the stories disturbing. So his friend remembered seeing that he had a German shepherd. Yeah. That's not something you can hunt no. with arrows stuck in it. And it's like, dude, you, you didn't think that was alarming at that point, but I digress. Yeah, why, uh, I guess, it's maybe it's because it was the 80s, but... I don't even know if that would be acceptable then. Yeah, whatever. I mean, if I saw somebody had just killed a German Shepherd, which was probably somebody's pet, I probably would return him in. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Or at least call the cops and be like, hey, my neighbor, maybe there was a legitimate reason, but you yeah. still try and figure hey, it out. Hey, my neighbor's killing the neighborhood dogs. Uh, maybe yeah. you should go give him a check. <laughs> yeah. Strange. All right, so nor did Dylan understand why anyone would object to the way he teased Fry's son. Now, this is the reddest of flags, and I don't know why this guy still hung out with him. Yeah. Once in the mid-'80s when the boy was five or six, Dylan shot a chipmunk under their backyard grill. Now he's talking about um, his old friend's son. Yeah. The boy was nearby and was curious, said Fry. Dylan grabbed the dead animal and began chasing his son around the yard until he tripped and fell, and then he ground the chipmunk in his face. Wow. So he chased like a five or six year old kid around with a dead chipmunk and like put it in their face. I so that's so messed up. F- first of all, I don't know why this guy Fry still hung out with him or like allows him near his children. Yeah, I, if anyone had you know did that to my kids, um, I I don't know what I would do. I'd probably go yeah. ballistic. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. So by the mid-1980s, Dylan's activities had attracted attention. Near Dylan's home, one man said he complained to the police because Dylan had killed his dog. Okay. Dylan's 22-year work record was good, however. His supervisor at the municipal water department, J.D. Williams, in a letter to Dylan's attorney after his arrest, said Tom is a dedicated and highly intelligent employee, and these qualities are reflected in his work. He gets along well with the other employees, and his attitude is always positive. In 1969, while he was a student at Ohio State, Dylan was investigated for possessing an antique Russian mortar. Authorities decided not to press charges after determining that the mortar was more of a collector's item than a weapon. Dylan was also knowledgeable about police procedures. In 1980, he had attended Ohio Peace Officers Training in St. Lawrence Township in Stark County, doing well in the course and graduating with an expert rating in marksmanship. In August in 1991, Dylan was cited by a game warden for illegally target practicing near a state hunting area in southern Stark County. Target shooting is a misdemeanor and he was fined $200 in Canton Municipal Court. Then, in a search of his pickup truck, the warden seized a 22 caliber pistol with a suppressor and that he was then indicted on federal charges because he's not allowed to have that in that state. Dylan's attorney at the time said he was optimistic that his client would, wouldn't serve any jail time because he had promised in a plea bargain to get rid of his weapon and not buy any more. Mr. Dillon has lived a law-abiding life, Seinberg wrote in a motion requesting leniency that portrayed Dillon as an avid and lifelong gun enthusiast who made a mistake but presented no threat to society. That's some, like, gleaning warning ahead of time. You see this in a lot of the cases of these serial killers that people always kind of like, oh, I had no idea, uh, you know, he was capable of this or that he could do this. or, But, I mean, looking at his life up to this point, it's pretty obvious something is, you know, deeply wrong with him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I put a lot of blame on this guy named Fry. Uh, yeah. I don't know the rest of the story, so maybe I'm... T- yeah, he tried, like, I, I always try and, like, put myself in the other person's shoes. And, like, because I've had some friends that have, like, done weird things. And I'm like, yeah. it's the things that maybe could have gone out of control. But none of them pass, like, a line. Yeah. There's several things here that cross a significant line. I probably wouldn't have kept hanging out with him after, like, oh, 100% years earlier. Oh, <laughs> would have cut ties off with yeah, him. Yeah, so 100%. I probably, yeah. But, yeah, if stuff like that kept happening, it would have been a call to the authorities for, for something. But, yeah. 
Anyway, so what we'll do now is I'm going to go over um, the five murders and then we'll describe each one and then kind of go into like an order of how they, they tracked him down and actually ended up charging him with the, with the murders. So the first one was Donald Welling. He's a 35-year-old man of Strasburg, Ohio. It was on April 1st in 1989. Uh, he was murdered while walking or jogging on the Tuscarawas, uh, Tuscarawas <laughs> County Road in 94. Yeah, I don't even know how to say that. Uh, so he was the first one. So he was doing all like the animal killing and the weird stuff yeah. for the majority of his life without actually being attributed to a murder. Uh, now, I will just with a, put the caveat, they're not entirely sure of all the murders he's done. Mm-hmm. These are the ones he's confessed to. I wonder what the trigger was. Maybe we'll learn this later. What moved him to the point beyond animals? Yeah, he talks and and explains why. Um, but then there's some, there's some skepticism around that. So we'll get into that. Okay. So the next one was Jamie Paxton, uh, 21 years old of Bannock, Ohio on November 10th, 1990 while deer, while deer hunting in Belmont County. After that, we have Kevin Loring. He was 30 of Duxbury, Massachusetts. That was on November 28th, 1990. So that was, uh, same month as Jamie, mm-hmm. uh, also while deer hunting. Okay. Claude Hawkins, 48, of Mansfield, Ohio, was March 14th, uh, two years later, while fishing at Wills Creek Dam in Coshcotton County. And the last one they have is Gary Bradley, 44 years old, of Williamstown, West Virginia, on April 5th, 1992. So the next month, just uh, it's almost like uh, within 30 days he'll do one, it so seems like. this. This is really interesting to me, and I'm going to try and tie it back to all of the other episodes we we typically do. So a lot of times we'll talk about a person just completely vanishing in the wilderness, and we never know why. And sometimes in the theories we kind of joke like, oh, maybe there's a serial killer living out in the woods. Like, yeah. this is a clear example of this gentleman, crazy guy, who he had a thing for killing people out, you know, People that deer hunt are usually, you know, pretty out, you know, deep into the woods. It's not something, I mean, you can do it closer to um, residential areas, but. Yeah, it's like harder to find a person. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's very interesting that he's he's targeting people in these remote areas out in the woods or on very, you know, lightly used county roads. And this goes right into the narrative of, you know, makes me think are a lot of the cases we talk about and a lot of the cases we haven't got to yet, could there really be more of these kinds of people preying on, you know, individuals, you know, way out in the middle of nowhere. And that's why we're never able to ever find any evidence of their bodies or their gear. I don't know, but you just made it a lot more terrifying to go hiking. (laughs) (laughs) I just was thinking of that because we always talk about serial killers as, as one possible theory. Yeah. No, I think, I think, yeah, I think it brings more credence to it. I think in general, it's like, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, that it's super rare. Oh yeah. Uh, it's obviously super rare, but I think it lends more credence to the fact that that could be considered a more likely variable than I think we've even been getting, giving it credence to. I'm sure a small percentage of all of those unsolved cases in the wilderness are probably related to a serial killer. Oh, they have to be. I even yeah. feel like the last one may have been. 
where he like got lost and his dog got lost and he was with those guys who he might have been in a gang with like i that i still think that could have been a homicide but yeah we don't have to we don't have to get into all that no i'm just trying to tie it back to uh, our normal type of episode sure so what I'll do now is I'll go through each of the murders in a little bit more detail before we get into like the cases. So around this is going to be Donald Welling, uh, the first one. This was around 9.30 a.m. on April 1st, 1989. Donald Welling was out jogging on a back road in Tuscar Awas County near New Philadelphia, a quiet community about 100 miles south of Cleveland, Ohio. Suddenly, a vehicle approached him, and he was shot at point-blank range. The vehicle is being driven by Thomas Dillon. He put a 30 caliber rifle bullet through Donald's heart from approximately 10 feet away. At the time, the authorities could not find a motive or any evidence to help them solve the murder. Dillon later said, He said, what's up? Just before I shot him. Just from me to you, just five feet away, this guy was just trying to be friendly and he blew, you know, I killed him. It wasn't premeditated. I told you guys that. Just... I was just driving along and came up on him, and that's it. Welling, and just I heard a voice in my head that said, open fire on him, and I did. And in 10 seconds from the the time I heard that voice till I shot him and killed him. So that was words directly from Dylan on why he did it. Crazy. Yeah, just like wrong place, wrong time. So now we'll do uh, Jamie Paxton's. Uh, 21-year-old Jamie Paxton was hunting outside St. Carlsville, an Ohio community near the state border with West Virginia on Saturday, November 10th, 1990. Ohio's annual bow hunting season was in full swing. Jamie headed out into the cold morning to try and bag a deer. Jamie lived with his parents in Bannock County, Ohio. Following breakfast, just before 7 o'clock, he headed out the door with his crossbow, said goodbye to his mother, Jean Paxton, and father, Mickey, and was never seen alive again. Jean had expected her son a home by mid-afternoon, but then at 2.40 p.m., as Jean went about her household chores, a sheriff's car pulled up to the house. Jamie had been found by his friend on a bushy hillside along Route 9, dead, from an apparent rifle bullet wound to his chest, right knee, and buttocks. Sheriff Tom McCourt knew that this was no accident. When we saw more than one wound, we knew it could not be an accident. Plus, it was a bullet wound rather than an arrow, and the and gun season was not in yet. So now Kevin Loring. 30-year-old Kevin Loring of Massachusetts was hunting in Muskegon County on November 28, 1990. He was a refrigerator technician who was married and the father of three children had been murdered by a single gunshot wound to the face. He had been hunting deer in a strip, a strip mine area. The murder of Loring had been deemed a hunting accident at the time. So as you can see a lot, of, there's like no connection. It's like almost seemingly at random. It You know, those hunting accidents are... A little more common than um, you think. I know here in Wisconsin, deer hunting is a really big deal. And Joe, what do you? What would you say? Probably at least one or two people are killed accidentally every deer season, yeah, either remember, by shooting themselves or getting shot. Yeah, I remember it was uh, like two years ago. They didn't have a single death, and it was kind of like a big deal. It's not like they have a ton, but yeah, they'll have at least one or two, and that's out of the 300,000 people that go out or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's hundreds of thousands in the woods, and some areas of the state where they hunt, it's, you know, they're more in, packed in on each other. And yeah, I think uh, some of them are, you know, accidents where they they shoot themselves. I mean, it, it yeah. 
It, They'll drop the gun. Unfortunately, a lot of it's with drinking, too. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, Wisconsin, uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people do drink and hunt. <laughs> yes. Um, which you should not do. Uh, you should mm-hmm. not handle firearms, even with one beer in you. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. He's he's killing these people. And, you know, the authorities probably are thinking, oh, yeah, probably just a stray bullet. Someone thought he was a deer. Yeah, it's there's just no connection to him, so they can't figure it out. So the next one is Claude Hawkins. He was on Saturday, March 14th, 1992. Uh, father of four children, he decided to do some early morning fishing after finishing up a midnight shift at the Pittsburgh Plate and Glass Company. Hawkins loved fishing and had a favorite spot just below Wills Creek Dam, which was in Belmont, Ohio. He was found dead, shot in the back at close range. Since the murder was committed on federal land, now the FBI gets called in. Special Agent Harry uh, Trumbittis from the Columbus Field Office was one of the officers assigned to the case. He said, Usually you would find some type of shell casing in the area. I remember looking very hard. Metal detectors, hands and knees for any shell casings, and that none were ever found. And so that was something you know if, in fact, we had somebody who was evidence, uh, evidence conscious enough to pick up the shell casings after they shot and killed somebody, we are dealing with a different brand of person here. Dylan said after his arrest, I drove by and he waved at me. I heard a voice that day that said, go back and get him. I saw him fishing down there. I heard a voice in my head say, go back and get him. Went down there and killed him. Shot him right in the back. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting comment about not being able to find the shell casing. Um, that reminds me of just De- like Dexter, how, yep. how careful he is with his you know, his killings. Yeah. He understood the rules and, and kind of what they were currently doing. So, yeah. So this guy, like Joe said earlier, had some training in how police operate. So he kind of knows, you know, a, you know, what to do to avoid capture. Uh, so it's yeah. just interesting. I, I don't really have a point. It just reminded me no, of Dexter. No, it's, it's a good point. <laughs> it's just that, that he's like, if he's saying it's not premeditated, but he's, comp- he's completely aware of how to clean up the scene. So it's got to be somewhat like, Maybe that individual killing wasn't premeditated, but you had a premeditated notion that you were going to kill somebody. Yeah. It's also scary to think that this poor guy fishing literally just waved at a stranger going by and it happened to be a serial killer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just Yeah, those odds are just terrible. Yeah, just the wrong place at the, the right time. It's crazy. Yeah. So on April 5th, 1992, West Virginia and father of three, Gary Bradley, was fishing near the county seat of Noble County, and he was shot by Dylan. Dylan was also investigated in connection with the unsolved shooting death of John Joseph Harvitt on November 28th, 1984, at at a hunting camp in Pennsylvania. So they, they, they still think he might have been tied with some other ones, but they don't have proof to tie him to that, and he didn't get yeah. cop to it. What you have is a hunter of humans, said a noted forensic psychiatrist who has been involved in such celebrated cases as Ted Bundy and Jack Ruby. Whoever killed the outdoorsman did it for his own satisfaction and pleasure, said Dr. Emmanuel Tenay, a professor of psychiatry at Wayne State University in Detroit. Police found little or no evidence at the murder scenes. The killer left no spent casings or other forensic evidence, and there were no witnesses. So I think that part plays into the fact that they're outdoors. You know, you're not in a crowded area. Yep. So a short time after Jamie's murder, Gene Paxton began writing letter a letter campaign, sending letters to the killer, 
via the Martin's Ferry Times Ledger. It's a newspaper saying, To the murderer or murderers of my son Jamie, would it be easier for you if I wrote words of hate? I can't because I don't feel hate. I feel deep sorrow at losing my son. You took a light from my life November 10th and left me with many days of darkness. Have you thought of your own death? Unless you confess your sin and ask God's forgiveness, you will face the fire and fury of hell. When you are caught, I will be sorry for your family. They will have to carry the burden of your guilt all their lives. Now, investigators told Jean that the killer probably wouldn't be moved by her letters or pleas, but she persisted, writing in October 1991, It's been nearly a year since you killed my son. Has your life changed in the past 11 months? Our family hasn't lived since last November 10th. We are surviving one day at a time. There's one question on our minds all day long and every time we wake up at night. We want to know why Jamie was killed. Jean's perseverance finally did pay off when the killer, Dylan, sent an anonymous type letter face to the local newspaper. The Times-Ledger, Sheriff McCourt, and the Paxtons. It had been posted from outside the Martins Ferry Post Office. After providing previously undisclosed details of the murder scene, it proved it was legitimate, and the letter said, I am the murderer of Jamie Paxton. Jamie Paxton was a complete stranger to me. I never saw him before in my life, and he never said a word to me that Saturday. Paxton was killed because of an irresistible compulsion that has taken over my life. I knew when I left my house that day that somebody would die by my hand. I just didn't know who or where. Technically, I meet the definition of a serial killer. But I'm an average-looking person with a family, job, and home just like yourself. Something in my head causes me to turn it into a merciless killer with no conscience. To the Paxtons, you deserve to know the details. I was very drunk, and a voice inside my head said, do it. I stopped my car behind Jamie's and got out. Jamie started walking very slowly down the hill towards the road. He appeared to be looking past me at something in the distance. I raised my rifle to my shoulder, lined them up in my sights. I took at least five seconds to take careful aim. My first shot was off a little bit and hit him in the right chest. He groaned and went down. I wanted to make sure he was finished, so I fired a second shot aimed halfway between his hip and shoulder. He was crawling around on the ground. I jerked the shot and hit him in the knee. He raised his head and groaned again. My third shot also missed and hit him in the butt. He never moved again. Five minutes after I shot Paxson, I was drinking a beer and had blocked out all thoughts of what I had just done out of my mind. I thought no more of shooting Paxton than shooting a bottle at the dump. I know you hate my guts, and rightfully so. I think about Jamie every hour of the day, as I am sure you do. Don't feel bad about not solving this case. You could interview till doomsday everyone that Jamie Paxton ever met in his life, and you wouldn't have a clue to my identity. With no motive, no weapon, and no witness, you cannot possibly solve this crime. The murderer of Jamie Paxton. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty insane, right? That is, uh, you know, shocking. Um, especially, you know, the the grim details of what he did and the <clears throat> arrogance. and Yeah, arrogance, I think, is the best word. Yeah, the arrogance of, like, I killed your son, and there's nothing you can do about it. And... The fact you know what's weird it it it, what, it didn't it would start to sound like he was rubbing it in yeah. but then it didn't mm-hmm. 
So I don't think he was gloating to them. I think he's just like pure, cold nothingness, he's, which is somewhat scarier. Like there's no humanity yeah, in that human I, being. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, his comment about how you know killing a person is no different than shooting a bottle. I mean, that is uh, that's pretty terrifying. That it's terrifying because if you really take like us, if you've ever shot a gun before, target shooting. Imagine shooting like a piece of paper if it's a target. Yeah. Imagine doing that to a human and feeling the same way. You have to be very sick mentally. Yeah. To, to associate those as, as similar. Well, and you know, I think it's hard for regular people to understand the mindset he's probably in. To him, that's normal. I know. You know it's that's so, the, and that's to your point, that's terrifying. That's terrifying that, you know, just literally, you know, how most everyone normal people have like a, a moral compass. They have a innate sense of what's right and what's wrong. Even if you know even like bad normal people. Yeah. I mean even people like, that are that commit crimes, you know, maybe petty theft or you know, things where they they steal or damage property, they still aren't going to kill somebody out of well, out of fun de- and i think even still deep down they probably know it's wrong yeah this guy literally has no moral compass when it comes to murder which is you know he's probably i bet we'll probably never know but i'm sure he probably never would steal like that's terrible you'd never do that but you know killing someone doesn't even question it yeah that no, is it's, it's it's creepy yeah that's a that's a next level um, I mean, even in the show, back to Dexter, even in Dexter, he has like a, the code where he only yeah. goes after criminals. When he accidentally kills an innocent person, he feels terrible about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, yeah, it's a shocking letter and it is terrifying that unfortunately there are people out there with serious illness that, uh, think this way and it's, uh, yeah, it's. It's crazy, um, and I can only. Well, I, it's usually it's usually kills or tortures animals and had a terrible relationship with the mother figure in their life. Those are like the two, and it's like only with white males. Like white males, terrible relationship with the mother. Yeah, no father in place, uh, harms and kills animals. I think the, the one they didn't mention, but I know I always hear is like wets the bed very late into their life. You know what? I think what we'll do in the show notes for this episode too is we'll post some information for anyone listening that it knows someone like I, I'm sure there are people out there that, that, that know somebody who needs help. So, um, we'll try and find some resources that you can call, not police, but like actual places you can call to seek help for these individuals. Yeah. Like and a mental assessment type help, some kind like of that. like a hotline or, you know, something yeah. that people can go to family members and friends, because I think the a guy like this, I don't know, he may be so messed up that, you know, he was too far to help, but there's probably a lot of people out there that have mental illness that just need some help. Sure. And if people around them can, you know, see that and get them help, I, cause this is, this is crazy. I usually, crazy. I, I don't, I don't ever usually watch actual like true crime shows like this. So I, this is a lot, this kind of stuff's pretty new to me. <laughs> it's like really <laughs> blowing your mind, blow up your mind. <laughs> So it did help the FBI profile him, though. So I mean, there's the so the letter didn't provide any breaks in any cases, but the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit in Quantico, Virginia, 
was asked to prepare a profile. So this was the so-called Hannibal Lecter squad. You know, the group, uh, this is like the time, like right after they just started this entire understanding of serial killers in the FBI. So this is like the A-team. Exactly. So the profile described the killer as an educated white male and as someone with a uh, I don't, I don't Predile- this, predilection. Pre- yeah, predilection for crimes. Oh, I thought it'd be like predisposition, but whatever. <laughs> uh, predilection for crimes such as arson and killing pets and farm animals. The profile was ever not perfect. It predicted the killer lived with a short distance of all the crimes, but he lived as far away as 150 miles from some, and that the murderer would be in his 20s. Dylan was 42 when he was arrested. He might be a normal family man, but was likely a loner, the report continued. He had a drinking problem and a history of compulsive vandalism and arson. Stress would t- trigger the shootings, which usually would be committed while he was drunk. So it got a lot of it pretty right. Yeah, that, uh, that, that's pretty amazing how accurate their report was, especially since, like you said, this Hannibal Lecter squad was relatively new at the time. So it's not like it's been around for 30 years. They were probably still figuring things out. So I yeah. give them a lot of credit for kind of yeah, just a few years before that. Like the idea of serial killers was like a, like a ridiculous notion. Yeah. So that, that is pretty interesting uh, how, how accurate they got. Yeah. So their first break came uh, with this Richard Fry person. This was an old high school friend of Dylan's and it was on August 26, 1992. We're doing like one of those movies where it goes in the middle, then to the beginning, then <laughs> back to the middle again. And we caught back up. Yeah. So now we're back up to Richard Fry. Uh, he called the detective uh, when he, after being disturbed with the preoccupation with serial killers and animal killings. So like they finally broke the cold case. Fry had read the August 11th, 1992 report in the newspaper about the case they were working on and the FBI profile. So he at least finally had enough, you know, gusto about him to like go, "Oh crap!" Yeah, this sounds a lot like my buddy. I uh, I take back my my harsh words I said about Fry. Um, yeah, but like it took the FBI saying, "Hey, that's not normal." Like for him to like five do it. killings, yeah, that we know of. Yes. So Fry and Dylan met at a ju- in junior year at former Glenwood High School in Plain Township. As teenagers, they would drive through the country, the countryside, taking shots at road signs and animals, as well as lighting random fires. Dylan began getting more violent and cruel by shooting family pets as they came, they came across. Several days before, Fry had called the FBI number listed in the various newspaper stories about the murders. He left a message on an answering machine. When the FBI didn't return his call, he tried the Tuscarawas County Sheriff's Department. I can't, I'll never get that name right. It's yeah, a tough one. That's like you and Patreon supporters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to meet with you, Fried told Detective Wilson. I saw the reports about the task force that had been formed to solve the killings, and I just think I got a guy who should be investigated as a possible suspect. The man was nervous about coming to the station, so Detective Wilson agreed to meet him at a private location outside of the town later that day. By the time the Southeastern Ohio Homicide Task Force had received many tips and none of them panned out, Wilson was initially skeptical, believing that Fry's story about Dylan looked like another dead end. Fry, however, said in 1993, he asked me if I thought he could or I had killed somebody. And he's talking about Dylan. Yeah. The way he looked at me chilled my blood. I thought he had a secret to tell. It was the look on his face and in his eyes. Fry had read about the killings and knew that Dylan liked to drive around those same areas 
at weekends in his car that they frequented in high school. He knew Dylan had weapons and had shot and killed animals. He felt that Dylan was the type of person who could do something like this. So Fry recounted, I used to go out hunting with him because we were gun enthusiasts. In the beginning, it was all pretty legitimate. But then we started hitting these dumps in southern Stark County. We go down there hunting rats and things. I remember we ran into a couple of scraggly dogs one time. They were all diseased. They were sick. I remember they had open sores. Tom said, do you think I ought to kill them? And I said, well, you'd probably be doing them a favor. I remember him shooting them. I didn't think too much about it. Wild dogs can be vicious. Then he started shooting dogs, just dogs along the road. I said, Tom, shooting a wild dog is one thing, but that dog doesn't look very wild to me. He said, you can't let them damn things be running around. I let it go once or twice, but then I said, Tom, you got to quit it or I won't go out with you. Those are somebody's pets. Somebody loves them. It's just not right to do that. Richard also said that while driving back from Atwood Lake in Carroll County, Tom pulled off the side of the road, pulled out a gun and started shooting at this farmer. Apparently the farmer was a good way off, two or 300 yards. One of the other others in the car protested, what the hell are you doing? Dylan explained that he couldn't hit a target at that distance with a pistol. So I'm just plinking at him, he said. So he pulled over with these kids and was shooting a gun randomly at a person. That, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's insane to me. If one of my friends uh, had a gun and pulled over and just started shooting at people, I don't care if they're a mile away, I, I'm reporting them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. That's ridiculous. Yeah. They shouldn't – worst case scenario, they're – just an idiot and shouldn't have guns and you know or that's the best case scenario worst case scenario they're you know like this guy and a serial killer (laughs) yeah so after their school days richard fry then ran into dylan again uh in the later years in 1986 he said it was the first time he'd spoken to him in a long time i said what in the world are you doing clear down here he said oh just driving around this and that richard didn't believe him when I saw him in New- Newcomer's Town, I thought he's moving farther south because he's still up to his old ways. Despite his suspicions, Fry renewed his friendship with Dylan in 1989, partly down to their common interest in firearms. Fry said, They moved the Ohio Gun Collectors Association gun show up to Cleveland, and I wasn't a member. Dylan invited him to be a guest. He said he had stopped killing animals, so I said, I guess we can be friends again. The gun shows were held in five or six days, five or six times a year and on the long drives together dylan and richard would talk about guns hunting and in some cases serial killers so he had a fascination with i think the idea of killing yeah well even from an early age when you were describing his childhood or yeah yeah he would drive out into the woods and pretend to be uh what'd you say a special forces commando like hunting people like yeah like he sees it's 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 like glorifying to him yeah like I I don't know anyone that, you know, did that, and I, I think you'd probably be hard-pressed to find, if you talk to actual Special Forces people, I don't think they take any joy yeah. if they have to, you know, kill an enemy combatant. So, yeah. Nope, agreed. Very strange. So Fry said Dylan talked about how easy murder would be. I remember one time he and I were driving, and he said, do you realize you can go out into the country and find somebody and there are no witnesses? You can shoot them. There's no motive. Do you realize how easy murder would be to get away with? I said, yeah, but why would you do it? On a trip to the gun show, Dylan asked more disturbing questions. Fry said, we were talking about 
Florida serial killer Ted Bundy and how can a guy get away with all that? Tom said, do you think I've ever killed somebody? The question really caught me off guard. I said, no, I don't think so. Dylan repeated, repeated the question. The way he said that to me was really scary. The informant remembered. I'd never seen him like that before. I thought to myself, has anybody been shot? <laughs> so, like, yeah. He, Maybe I... Again, yeah. every time this guy's friends with them, he does the craziest crap, and he doesn't realize it until it's too late. I don't, Maybe I, just because we've been doing this podcast for several years now, I'm just much more suspicious. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it, it, the conversations are strange. The complete lack of uh, care with the firearms, you know, like shooting it at, you know, people off in the distance, that killing of animals is always a red flag. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, what it's like good on this guy for coming in now. Finally. But as he's yeah. telling the story, it's like, uh, you should have been here years ago, dude. It's almost like, I mean, would he have had the scene, this guy kill someone in front of him to, to connect the dots. I, yeah, we're like getting there. I know we're playing <laughs> Monday morning quarterback with this. Obviously, yes. if it's a friend of yours that you've grown up for, you know, probably a lot of people out there have friends that they've known forever. And despite a lot of the dumb stuff they do, they're still friends with them. So yeah. I could see that side too on Fry's part, but I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. So as you can tell, obviously they're kind of on his trail now. So Tom Dillon's coworkers and neighbors were interviewed by members of the investigating task force. One coworker who said he had known Dylan for 20 years said Dylan's nickname was killer because he often bragged about shooting dogs and cats. The coworker and a second city employee described Dylan as a loner. He did not have a good relationship with his wife. They told investigators the coworkers also provided a possible link between Dylan and the murders of the outdoorsman uh, of the outdoorsman. <clears throat> Excuse me. Dylan kept maps on his table and filing cabinet of many of the East central Ohio counties where the killings occurred. A second enticing link was established when Dylan's history of firearm, firearms purchases showed that he had bought numerous weapons from a co-worker who had a federal firearms dealer's license. The dealer's record showed Dylan had bought 18 weapons in the last several years, including four 30 caliber type rifles and two Mausers of the kind used to kill four of the five victims. So that's a pretty big break as far as linking it to somebody. The first clue linking Dylan to the crimes was that his weekends and vacations time matched the dates of the killings. On September 20th, 1992, a neighbor saw a red Toyota pickup truck near the spot where the dog was killed in Tuscar, Awas County. A 25 caliber bullet was removed from the dog, and Richard Fry had told detectives Wilson that Dylan owned a similar gun. Wilson, who had been trailing Dylan alone for several weeks, had enough to get the go-ahead for round-the-clock surveillance. The county sheriff, Harold McGimmy, said Wilson's preliminary work convinced the other task force members that Dylan was a viable suspect. Wilson's biggest job was getting the task force interested in Dylan. McGimmy said, From early on, I felt strongly about him. He appeared to be your everyday guy, but underneath the surface, he wasn't. Not even close. Now, beginning in mid-October, the task force tailed Dylan from the air and on the ground to gun shows and on weekend trips into Belmont, Harrison, Tuscarawas, Holmes, and Carroll counties. He was often seen drinking from early in the morning. So they have a full surveillance operation. Yeah, the FBI is, now. Yeah, the FBI is air and ground. 
tailing this guy. It's like the scene out of uh, Goodfellas in the end, where uh, yeah, where he <laughs> he gets in the car and there's a helicopter and there's yeah everything just following him everywhere he goes. <laughs> yeah. So on November eighth, aerial surveillance saw surveillance saw Dylan stop several times and point what appeared to be a gun at electric meters on oil well pumps and a stop sign. Dylan also stopped next to a car with a for sale sign on it, picked up a large rock and threw it through the windshield. This is, it's like, he's just like destroying things as he goes around, like shooting stuff and throwing rocks at cars. I'm assuming uh, he's probably drunk while doing this. He must be. Uh, Yeah, I mean. He's got to be. It sounds like he has a pretty, pretty severe alcohol problem. Yeah. And they, they guessed that in their profile, which is incredible that they figured it out down to a science. Yeah. So on November 11th, the task force members lost sight of Dylan on his way home from uh, Belmont County. Later that day, they learned that two cows had been killed with a crossbow. Richard Fry helped obtain several of Dylan's arrows and match those found in the dead cows. So right when they lose track of him, he goes and kills two cows. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost... Yeah, it seems like the episodes of him killing things is increasing. Yes. As as time goes on, he's getting worse. So it almost seems it was inevitable that he was going to get caught because he was kind of spiraling out of control. Yeah, it seems like that. Yeah. He's just he's just slipping up more. Yep, and just killing more animals and uh yeah. obviously murdered five people at this point. Yeah. So that was November 11th. On November 21st, the team followed Dylan to a gun show in New Philadelphia where he bought a 22 caliber rifle. The purchase of that gun and a 25 caliber handgun at the gun show in Cleveland on November 7th was enough to arrest Dylan for violating his plea bargain on the silencer charge. But the FBI still had no direct evidence to link him to the killings of the five outdoorsmen. So basically because of that whole incident with his suppressor, yeah. uh, he wasn't allowed to buy those types of guns anymore. Mm-hmm. So they at least had something to bring him in on if they needed to, but they weren't going to do it yet because they wanted to connect him to the They're murder. still building a case on the bigger, exactly. the bigger problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Dylan was spotted visiting Kevin's, Kevin Loring's grave in Massachusetts. Dylan told police after his arrest, when I went to New England last year with my wife, I looked up on microfilm in the Plymouth Library where the guy lived and everything. He was from the Duxbury area. I just read, you know, I to see what who the hell he was. I didn't know who he was. Despite the surveillance, Dylan would attempt to kill Larry, kill Larry Euler in Tuscarawas County, but he missed him and Euler escaped uninjured. Wow, what a lucky guy. Yeah. <laughs> in November 1992, at around 9 a.m. on a remote Harrison County road, an FBI surveillance plane with Detective Sergeant Walter Wilson on board was following Dylan's red Toyota pickup truck. Dylan was already drunk on beer, Ahead of the truck was a T-intersection and near it a female jogger. She turned right. Fortunately, Dylan turned left. So he's – so obviously on top of all this other stuff, he's recklessly driving around drunk probably every day. Yeah. I mean, it's a miracle that he didn't <laughs> he didn't get into a terrible accident. I mean – Well, it's, it's one of those like the – it's like the perfect storm things. Like you have mm-hmm. a guy – who society would benefit from like crashing his car and killing himself probably from being drunk. And he's just getting by constantly doing it, not getting caught. Yeah. I mean, it it sounds like he had obviously a severe drinking problem and he does all this stuff when he's drunk. I I can assume that he's drinking and driving a lot. He drinks to like suppress the voices, but then he just goes crazy. Like, yeah, 
he's completely insane. It's it, now that I think about it, it, it seems pretty shocking that he was able to go this long without getting caught. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now we're getting closer to his arrest. So as hunting season approached, the surveillance team decided that they had, they had to move in to stop any further killings. Dylan was finally arrested on November 27, 1992, after nearly six weeks of surveillance as he left the convenience store in his county. They arrested Dylan on a federal weapons charge on November 27th as he was awaiting sentencing for possessing, possessing a silencer and announced that he was their suspect in the serial shooting. So he just said he was the suspect. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, they, a nice break. <laughs> a nice break. Yeah. I mean, a do, a, I don't know a lot about serial killers, but I is the the fact that they want to get notoriety or anything like that is that play into some of this like he almost wanted to tell him like oh well we'll we'll get to that okay <laughs> so at a press conference afterwards they asked anyone who had sold firearms to Dylan to come forward with any evidence so on December 4th in 1992 a gun dealer in Stark County brought in a Swedish Mauser rifle he said that Dylan had sold to him on April 6th at a Massillon gun show the day after Bradley was murdered Ballistics tests indicated that it was the rifle used to kill Bradley and Hawkins. So he killed them and then sold the gun to somebody else. So even though he was trained in police, uh, you know, tactics, he obviously missed a pretty crucial one there. uh, If, well, I think if I I would disagree, he didn't own the gun anymore. He got rid of it and not in a way that it would be like found potentially i guess i mean i think if you committed a crime with a weapon you would wouldn't you want to destroy it instead of just sell it to somebody (laughs) well or or you sell it and use a fake name i guess i don't know i was just i was just thinking maybe that was a big slip up you know he he killed someone yeah he killed someone i would like i don't know maybe like melt it down or something yeah, I don't know. I don't, it, yeah, I don't, whatever. Yeah. I'm glad. Here's the deal. I'm glad I don't know because I don't need to know. Yeah. <laughs> so on January 27th, 1993, Dylan was indicted on capital charges in both cases. Searches of Dylan's home and vehicles failed to turn up either firearms or other evidence linking him to any other brutal murders. The authorities also believe that Dylan could be responsible for as many as reported 108 arsons of barns and abandoned houses since 1988. Dylan's family members were shocked by his arrest. His mother-in-law, Ann Elsess, a retired high school teacher and guidance counselor, refused to believe that her son-in-law was capable of the murder. Dylan is a witty, kind man who has always had a yen for guns, she said. Even though she refused to believe initial allegations against him, she said, If they're true, they're true. My stomach is churning. I have to keep my spirits up for Kathy, which was her daughter. Maybe part of me wants wants to deny this. Tom was always pleasant. He was always joking. He seemed like a son to me. We're a very close knit family. I mean, that is uh, the mo for most serial killers. They, you know, around most of their family and friends, they're able to completely act normal, and then off in the shadows, they commit these heinous crimes. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's it, it's crazy, but not shocking. Yep. So on February 9th, nineteen ninety three. Dylan arrived at the Noble County Courthouse. The proceeding was short, and Dylan pleaded not guilty to murder charges in the deaths of Gary Bradley and Claude Hawkins. A third murder charge was filed against Dylan on May 22, 1993. He was charged with the aggravated murder and the death of Jamie Paxton. On July 12, 
Tom Dillon entered his pleas before the judge in Noble County Commons Pleas Court. He showed no emotion as he answered guilty to each charge. Dillon also admitted to setting 160 fires and committing other acts of vandalism in eastern Ohio during the preceding five years. Noble County Sheriff London Smith estimated that Dillon's fires caused more than $2 million in damages. The fires were set in Koshkin, Belmont, Guernsey, Carroll, Columbiana, and Tuscarawas counties. Noble County Prosecutor said the plea agreement was the most practical solution. Even though he preferred a sentence of death, I kind of felt like he ought to die, his, he said. Dillon's lawyer, Roger Sinberg, countered claims that Dillon felt no remorse. He had some regrets about this, but he also got to put it all behind him. So he uh, he literally caused a path of damage through oh, Ohio yeah. for half a decade. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's just a terrible, terrible human being. Yeah, and for most of his life, he he's been committing you know awful acts of animal killings <clears throat> and yeah, crazy. Yep. So in return for the state dropping the death penalty specifications, Dylan pleaded guilty to five counts of murder and was sentenced to five consecutive life terms with no chance of parole for 165 years on July 12th, 1993. Dylan said, I have major problems. I'm crazy. I want to kill. I want to kill and blamed a turbulent childhood for his problems. Dylan also said he was afraid to be sent to the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville, a max security facility and the site of a riot just a few years before he was caught. In response to his concerns, family members of his victims began a petition drive to have him sent there. Oh, More than 8,000 Ohioans signed the petition, which the state of Ohio honored. So, I mean, it's not like it made up for it, but it was kind of like, you know what? No, screw you, dude. Yeah. I don't care what you want. You're a like, s- oh, you hate that place? You're going to that place. Yeah. You're a serial killer. We're, we're not honoring <laughs> your request. Yeah. So, at 7 o'clock the next night after the sentencing, the the Paxton's telephone rang. It was Thomas Dillon. He told Jean Paxton that her pathetic coward comment had hurt him. That's what you are, Thomas, she replied. And if you start with your cocky attitude, I will hang up. I've heard enough of that for the past several months. I'm not interested in what you have to say. But there are things I want you to know, Thomas. Have you ever heard the expression, tears of the safety valve of the heart? He had not, so she talked about repentance and prayer. Quit your profanity, stop the loopy simpering in front of the cameras, and pick up a Bible before it's too late. She said Paxson continued speaking to him for an hour, finally concluding, We have spoken long enough. I can't hate you, but I can never forgive you for what you've done to our lives. So I got to give a big shout out to Jean Paxton because she is a mother who had her 21-year-old son murdered for literally no reason is asking her son's killer to try and forgive himself even though she's admitting she can't hate him and or forgive him herself yeah that's very strong will yeah that's uh you know that's she's a better person than most for for doing that i think uh, a lot of people would be so full of rage and anger that probably wouldn't even take the call yeah Uh, I, i don't know if i could yeah, I mean, hope hope us like and the sound <laughs> of their voice and just knowing they're alive and well. Yeah, would block out anything that they could ever say. Yeah, hopefully none of us ever have to uh, to find out. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, no thanks. That uh, that's a pretty strong woman. 
so this is from the psychologist who examined him. So they're trying to figure out, okay, like what is the motivation of this? We kind of see the profile, but like what's behind it? So it was Dr. Jeffrey Smalden who examined Dylan at the request of his defense attorney at the trial said, what you see is someone who looks and presents in a way that seems frighteningly, frighteningly, frighteningly normal. Jeez, I can't say that word. <laughs> That's all karma for me teasing you for saying names wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the reality is, that most of the people who commit crimes like those that Dylan committed come across just that way. You never would have picked him out of a crowd. He was married with a son, a college education, and worked 22 years as a draftsman. Everyone knew that Dylan liked to hunt. They just didn't know what he was hunting. Dylan would find his victims along the byways of rural Ohio. There was no rhyme or reason to how he selected his targets. He just climbed into his pickup truck on weekends drove a hundred miles or more until he found someone utterly alone, a hunter, fisherman, a jogger. When he came upon them, he would turn his truck around, pull out his rifle, take aim. And as he later told police, he would never miss. In his confession, he said that he shot his first victim 13 years earlier, a man sitting at home watching TV. So this guy was with his back to the picture window of his house. He was just sitting on the sofa. So this thought came to me, he said, stop, back up, and said, shoot this guy. So I shot at him through the picture window. This sort of voice in my head said, go back and get him. Go back and get him. I took my rifle. I went down there, jumped the guardrail, went down through the pine trees. I shot him in the back. But this voice was Dylan's own, Smalden said. When I asked him, ab when I asked him about that, he finally admitted, well, like, it wasn't another voice. I know it was me. It was my own voice. It was a voice in my head. Smalden said he was living in a fantasy world of his own creation. He talked on and on about the various fantasy roles that he'd envisioned himself in over the years. They ran the gamut from being president of the United States to being the lead singer for the Doors or the Beatles to being brought out of retirement by the Cleveland Browns to lead his team to the Super Bowl. But the grandiosity, but they were all linked together by the theme of power, prestige, influence, and grandiosity. Now, I also found that his fantasy life had a much darker component than the examples that I've cited. Certain of his fantasies involved himself as a combatant in a war situation. On the murder of Kevin Loring, I don't know, just someone, something came to me. You know, I just spur the moment thing. Described his murder of Jamie Paxton, he said, I heard a voice that said, do it. You know, I just, I got out. I had my rifle with me. It was a 308. I got out. He came off the hill for me. I just, I opened fire on him. He told the officers he felt bad that Paxton was only 21. I felt bad about the kid, you know. I didn't know he was that young. I couldn't see how old he was from a distance. I thought he was 30, 35. I didn't know he was that young. Blew that kid away. You know, he had his whole life ahead of him, and I blew him away, you know. I felt sorry for him. And that's, you know, that's a weird way to think of it. I didn't think about it till right now. Mm -hmm. The way he said, I felt sorry for him. He said it like he felt sorry for something that happened to somebody that he didn't have anything to do with. Yeah, that is a good point. That shows you how detached from reality yeah, he is. Like <laughs> he caused it, and he's like, man, I really felt sorry for that guy. It's like, dude, you did it to that guy. Yeah, you did it to him. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's those little little things you pick up that really go to build the case of how messed up this guy was well yeah it just shows there's no humanity there's something missing in like the amygdala of his brain <laughs> like he's just not functioning like a normal person for some reason yeah so, 
Smallbin thought there was another reason that Dylan wrote the letter. He was drawn by the urge to inset himself into the investigation, to, in effect, say, here I am, and he brags in the letter, not just here I am, but here I am, catch me if you can. Then they ask why he killed. Dylan never seemed to have an answer. Asked if he had any feelings toward his victims, Dylan answered no feelings whatsoever. They were just there, the wrong place at the wrong time. I think he's holding back because he wants to remain a puzzle, Smallden says. He would ask me, have you ever met anyone as complicated as me? Can you understand this? Am I, is this behavior as perplexing to you as it is to me? There's never been a crime like this in Ohio, has there? No motive, no contract with the victims. How could you figure that out? And then he would shrug and say, I don't know. I really think that he felt he was something special, says Miller. And when he was arrested and the plea and so forth, he's not a guy that used a jacket to cover his head. You know, he looked into the camera, almost with a smirk on it. I mean, he was proud of himself and proud of his period of fame. And I think he would have done it again. So, yeah, he, like, wanted the attention. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, I guess I don't know enough about serial killers, but I do feel like that is a big aspect of it. You know, they, uh, they want the attention or they want, they want their, their acts of heinous crimes to be, you know, found and in the, in the papers or in the news. But yeah, I mean, the, this, the, the simple fact that he's so detached from any feelings from killing those people, he probably, he has no comprehension of how crazy, you know, that sounds like he should be, that he should be proud of what he did. Yeah. It's almost like he's just being truthful. Like he's just being truthful. Like this is how I feel. And to us, it just seems so heinous, but like to him, it's like throwing paper in the garbage. Like, yeah, I, I threw it in the garbage. It's like, but, but it was someone's life, but that's, I think how his brain is so broken. Yeah. And I, I think I agree. Like there's like all of his like dreams were about being remembered or something special. Like this is his way of like, well, if I can't be those things, I'll just be this thing, this unique serial killer figure. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. He wanted to be president or come back and save the Cleveland Browns or you know this or that. It all kind of had a theme, um, but yeah, what a what a crazy guy. I honestly had never heard of this case before. Today. I didn't either. <laughs> I mean, we were what like eight, nine years old. Yeah, we what were was going on. I mean, and don't get us wrong. Uh, Wisconsin has its fair share of uh, crazy serial killers over the years. We had. Um, Ed Gein, um, obviously the the Netflix show on the the guy up north. I can't remember the name of him now. Um, oh yeah, who wants to be a mur- or what was it called? I don't want to get. I it wrong. don't know. Well, uh, and Jeffrey Dahmer. Ch- I li- we li- we lived like a couple blocks away from where his apartment in was. in college. Yeah, we were. I think by the time we were there, they had already bulldozed the house. Um, yeah, but yeah, we uh, we lived our our junior year in college only. A, couple blocks from where Jeffrey Dahmer killed uh, a couple of people, the ambassador yeah. hotel. <laughs> yep. I think That's, it's called yeah, the ambassador hotel, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. I don't even know. Yeah. So, so long <laughs> Wisconsin. Yeah. Wisconsin does have its fair share of uh, crazy serial killers um, in its past. I know they made a movie out of Ed Gein. Uh, he, uh, he, I don't know if you know about him, but he would use his victims and turn them into like, lampshades 
Yeah, Cur- it's so messed up. I know, it's so weird. Why? I, why Wisconsin? Why are we producing all of these crazy? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I, I sometimes don't like it here, but not that bad. Maybe it's the cold winter. So, I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to make light of it, but so. But just to, to close out on this, uh, Tim Dillon did die in prison in 2011, in October, uh, after being ill for nearly three weeks due to cancer. So he died at 61 mm-hmm. from cancer in prison. So he is no longer of this earth. I wonder if, and we'll never know. I'm wondering. I wonder if the scientific community ever like takes because you know, I I read a story once that when Einstein died, they actually took his brain and studied it. Oh, I would because they were I would so be they wanted if they don't do study it. Yeah, because like with Einstein, one of the smartest per- people to ever live on this planet, they wanted to learn everything they could about why he was so much you know more intelligent than everyone else around him i'm wondering if they could do the same thing with someone like this dylan guy like take you know after he dies you know study his brain to figure out all right what what caused this to happen in him was it a chemical imbalance was it you know the brain developed you know wrong in yeah. you know child you know before he was born who knows i have no clue but. i i i wonder <laughs> if it's a mix of that yeah. with like the poor like the childhood experiences because you got to know like there's got to be thousands of people unfortunately i'm not saying it's a good thing but like unfortunately they have like no father figure their mother's abusive a bad childhood exactly terrible childhood and they don't all turn into serial killers so i wonder if you're correct if there's like okay hey if if you have this brain function and you live that childhood you have a very high likelihood that you'll become a serial killer or something like yeah, that. Yeah, maybe it's like a combination of factors that all have to perfectly happen to, you know, trigger someone like this guy to. But then you're getting to Minority Report style, <laughs> yeah. like pre-crime stuff, which is I don't know if that's scary or not. I, that's like equally as scary. No, I th- I think it's scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it, it, Joe, this was um, a very interesting episode. It was very dark. It, yeah, we apologize for that, and it's it's not it's not a normal type of episode we do. We want to just try to yep. switch things up, just to do something. Yeah, different. we're gonna sprinkle in some true crime, full on true crime every now and it, then. They will have up. like an outdoors, uh, yes. bent to it. It won't just be you know your typical just a ra- another random true crime podcast. Yeah. So if uh, you listen to this and you liked it or hate it, let us let us know. We're we're curious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you really like it, we'll do more. If everyone unanimously says that was terrible, never do it again, then we'll stop. Yeah. And uh, unless we want to do one again, <laughs> it's our show and we'll do what we want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess uh, uh, thank you uh, once again for tuning in. Uh, if you want to help the show out, visit, visit us on all of the social media, uh, platforms like us on facebook instagram uh youtube we're already we're almost to 800 subscribers on youtube if we get to a thousand we can start monetizing our videos uh so if you have not subscribed yet subscribe (laughs) oh i can't wait till we do video it's gonna be a little bit because we gotta figure it all out but that'll it'll make youtube way more viable yeah and uh always uh you can always help us out on patreon for as little as one dollar a month you can help us out by buying stuff from our store uh and if you don't, you know, if times are tough and you don't have any money, you can just help us out by word of mouth. Just tell everyone you know about our show. <laughs> yeah, click that subscribe button yeah. and share. What, what do YouTube always say? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Thanks for having my show. Click that subscribe sma- button. Smash the like button. Yeah, smash the like button. <laughs> you know, punch it. 
Um, violently, violently like our show. We have a we have an exciting, uh, interesting case coming up for our next episode. We don't always have our episodes done this soon, but Joe, we'll be doing a uh, interesting case on a woman who went missing on the Appalachian Appalachian Trail. Ooh. Um, okay. Yeah, and uh, it, an interesting case, and uh, we'll be getting back to our bread and butter uh, next episode. Perfect. <laughs> All right. So. All right. And always remember when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or just taking a long walk, always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time. 